America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Every time I sit with somebody who's dying, I actually learn about my death. Meet Mary Telliano, the death doula. She works with clients at the end of their lives to help them grieve and die gracefully. We talk about what people really care about at the end of their lives, how our culture denies death, and the use of psychedelics to both live and die better. All right, welcome, Mary. Hi. So happy that you're here. Thank you. Uh, I've been wanting to learn about death doula for a while. So can you start out by just giving me and uh, people who are listening or watching an overview of what it is that you do in that capacity? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we are souls who are seeing other souls in the end of life process and helping people complete that and have the highest intention for the best death possible for the person in front of us. Mm. So our aim is to give people resources, to be an assistant to the family, to guide them through the energetic process of dying. We have a great medical system that's set up for hospice to support and manage pain, but there's a heavy emphasis on the spiritual aspect and Mm -hmm. the energetic. And that's where we come in and we can lend a little bit more of uh, a hand and an openness. And sometimes a death doula is there and she's the act or he or she is the act of presence. And sometimes they're helping with estate planning and contracts and all of those things. So there's a variety of doulas. Um, and I truly believe every human's a doula, actually. Mm. <laughs> if you're alive, you're a death doula, you know how to do it. Um, so, it, you know, this isn't something that you just slip into. This is something that everybody is. Mm. So there's, I mean, a hundred things that came up for me there. So <laughs> concretely, it sounds like this isn't like you don't just show up on a particular day. There's somebody reaches out to you or, or learns about what you do. And then we don't know necessarily when anybody is going to pass. So what does that process look like? Like you might be with a particular person for an extended period of time coming in from time to time. Are you there eight hours a day? That varies too. So sometimes I'm with a client, my longest client I've had is eight months Mm -hmm. and we were working together in treatment before hospice. I've worked with somebody a day before they die. And mm-hmm. then I work sometimes with the family and I've never even met the person in physical form who passed away. I'm helping them process grief mm-hmm. years later, months later. Um, so there's a variety of like when I drop into people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very vast. How do these people find you? Cause I would not even know to look yeah. for this kind of support. Yeah. You have to create awareness, having conversations on podcast. I have a podcast. I create Mm -hmm. community events, grief healing ceremonies. um, And I just make myself available all over my social media to kind of just be a part of that conversation. And I think if you have that conversation enough, that beacon gets wider Mm -hmm. and wider. And the way that clients come through is really magical and synchronistic. And so um, I just create the part where I'm saying yes and showing up and I serve the people who I'm supposed to serve. I do a lot of work in hospice as well, Mm -hmm. volunteer work. So that also creates um, another pocket of, for me to be seen in. Got it. So when I, I don't have a lot of, I think 
the way that our society is set up and our culture. I don't, I've never witnessed someone pass. Um, the closest thing would be, you know, an animal who was at the end of their life getting put down in a vet. But, uh, when I think of my experiences firsthand with death, they're incredibly limited. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like, how did you get into this? Did you have a different sort of upbringing than I did where this was more present in your life? (laughs) Yeah, you know, people ask me all the time, like, where did this start for you? And Mm -hmm. I can say my initiation in death was my near-death experience at four. Mm. At four years old, I drowned, and I had an experience. And I can say that life did change after there. Um, Even though I was very young, I uh, those memories are very close about what happened that day, all the different things that led up to there. And so I would say that's my initiation into death. And from that point, I never really had... Um, a disassociation from it. I had a very natural curiosity about the end of life process. Um, I used to go down the street and uh, when I was eight to this gentleman's house where he was older and he was dying and I would just go there after school and want to be around him. Wow. I don't know why I was just attracted naturally to this process. I think I found more life at the end of life than what other people were necessarily feeling. Um, And then I started volunteering at 12 in elderly homes um, for the same curiosity. And then um, as I became older and harnessed my skills, became a plant medicine facilitator. And naturally, these two worlds began to merge. Mm -hmm. My work with end of life and with plant medicine. Um, So it's a calling that is hard to ignore. This is like a real vocation. I mean, given your history, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Every doula, I truly believe, and when I say every human's a doula, we are, Mm -hmm. but everybody who signs up for this work has the same cell, whatever that cell is in me, they have, we share that in Mm -hmm. common, that desire to share um, ourselves at the end of life. Did you ever have a more traditional job or for you, was that just not even in the cards? Yeah, yeah. for 16 years, I was a finance and insurance manager (laughs) at a motorcycle dealership Um, and I enjoyed it. But um, the more that I stepped into the plant medicine world, the more the work of a doula came to a very like, this is your work. There was no more denying it Mm. and running from it. So when I discovered what an end of life doula was, I gave my three months notice and I was like, I'm doing this. Wow. I'm all in. So at 12, you were volunteering at this. Mm-hmm. And then you mm-hmm. sort of, like a lot of people, I think, yeah. you know, you had to make some money and, and yeah, establish I yourself. And- yeah, I, I, I didn't see that curiosity as something that was going to be a career. Mm-hmm. Um, I just was in it. I was just there and participating with it. And then that door just kind of closed. You know, it was a program through my family's church. Uh, it was called the Agape Club. Mm-hmm. So it was an after-school program. So once I graduated school, you know what I mean? Like you just don't go back to those programs and, and that was it. Yeah. So I wanted to, there's, I mean, a hundred things, but uh, I don't want to forget when you were four, what what was that experience? You don't need to necessarily mm. recount the specifics of yeah. that day, but what what was so impactful? What do you remember and recall? You know, I even have recollections of it, even when I was driving here today. It's such a, it's a profound part of my life, even though it was so young. Um, When I, so in Hawaii, it's where I was born and raised. There's a place called Waipio Valley and it's a river and it goes out into the ocean. My father was somewhere on the beach hanging out. My brothers were at the shore and I decided to walk up the river by myself and so I walked up the river, and if you know anything about this valley, you're locals only. Like, you can't just come onto this beach <laughs> and be there. So I knew everybody there. 
Um, and there was nobody. And I remember looking at the water and I was really determined at that age to swim, but I couldn't swim yet. And I remember looking at the water and being like, I got this. You could do it, Barry. <laughs> wow. And I jumped in and um, the river started to carry me away and I couldn't get to the top of the water. So what I remember um, is brown water and churning and sinking, bubbles going above my head and then darkness. Mm-hmm. That was it. Those that that was like the timeline, and so I was in just nothing. It was a void. I've been there now as an adult on plant medicine. It's very interesting to make that connection back. Um, and when I came back into my body, so I didn't go to like a light with, you know, how other people talk about it. it was just nothing. Um, and when I came back and I was on the ground and I was coughing, there was this person standing above me. And it was the tallest being I've ever seen. And I couldn't see the face and it went on for miles. And um, I knew in the presence of this, I was okay. Whatever this being was, I didn't feel scared anymore. I was okay. And then before I could even like connect with this being, I hear my mom screaming down the beach. She left work that moment and came to the beach because she felt something was wrong with me. Wow. So my mom's screaming down the beach. She's running towards me. I am now out of this trance and running towards my mom to tell her everything. She goes and finds my dad and yells at him. It becomes a thing. And then we get finally get back to like, well, who was it that got you out of the water? And I tried to explain to my mom what I could at the time, and we couldn't find anybody on the beach that was what I was trying to describe. Wow. So you went from river to washed up on a beach mm-hmm. and you were unable to figure out if there was a human that I could, I, I really, I don't feel it was a human presence. Wow. My dad is six foot two. Mm-hmm. So I know at that age, I, I had the perception of what tall, mm-hmm. a tall man would be. This being went on into the sky mm-hmm. and the sun was right behind it. And I just, you got salt water in your eye, things are blurry, you know, and I just couldn't focus long enough to be like, what are you? Thank you. Like it just Mm -hmm. happened so fast. And then my mom was running down the beach and then it was over. Wow. Yeah. Did that, I mean, obviously, (laughs) have you been afraid of your own death since then in a way that I know that most people sort of implicitly are? Do you have a different experience when you listen to what people say their fears are? It's changed over time. Mm-hmm. I think I've gone through the natural evolution of fearing death. I, I, as I think we're supposed to go through that initiation of finally realizing, oh, okay, there's something happening over there and whatever it is, I'm excited to get there. There's the whole process of, to of unfolding. There. Yeah, I feel like you know, so many people I love are up the river. They're just mm-hmm. a few miles up the trail as me and I'll, well, we're going to meet up at the same place. And mm-hmm. so, um, over time that's evolved and then I've become a mom and you have the natural fears of leaving too soon and making sure that, you know, you live a full life so you can witness the lives you've created. So there's those natural fears, but I don't, um, I guess it's fear is, is okay to kind of follow, you know, and bounce around my body. It's, I'm just kind of surrendered when it's my turn. When it's my turn, I think I've developed enough practices of letting go um, that I think there'll there'll be more ease in it. Yeah, that's a a shaman that I worked with said that this is you know we're learning to die (laughs) was one of the things that he said when uh, I think this was prior to doing ayahuasca probably in one. That's all we're here to do is learn how to die. But there's there's so much joyfulness and bitterness and 
clarity mixed with unclarity. The journey is what it's about. Mm -hmm. And then that's through the journey we learn how to die. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's powerful. You know, the Egyptians revered it as the biggest honor of your life was to die. Really? Yes. Okay. So moving now to your, to your work, Mm -hmm. what sort of things you mentioned the Egyptians just here, like how do you do it? What is the doing? You mentioned estate planning that I can see and visualize and concretely Mm -hmm. understand. Yeah. Um, emotionally supporting people, you know, that, that I can visualize. It sounds like to you, there's an energetic shepherding that Mm -hmm. is occurring. And I'm curious. I love how you said that. Yeah. Energetic shepherd. Yes, there is. There is that, um, you know, one of my clients kind of showed me what that piece was. I had been volunteering for at that point, like a year and a half. And I'd been working with this particular client for six months and we had a very powerful connection. Um, and as he was passing, he was holding my hand and I immediately went into this place where he was and he was saying like, the whole point of you being here is you're, you're just supposed to be a battery. You're a battery. That's the point. That is what your work is. And so it's like this extra person that can plug in and see where they're at just to infuse a little bit more energy into Mm -hmm. what is taking place. And the way that we do that is through presence, through asking open-ended questions, through seeing where people might be stuck in their lives of letting go. So helping them compassionately close, Mm. um, helping the family recognize things that sometimes hospice doesn't tell them, um, you know, when people stop eating food, it becomes very personal for a family. And um, helping them understand, like, the body doesn't need food mm-hmm. where it's going. And just having that one shift creates so much ease in the energy because now they've let that go. Yeah. And now the person has permission to refuse food. And everybody's kind of walking in the same place. But I find that the energetics can sometimes be so muddled in a lot of different layers of family dynamics that we can kind of come in and and serve as a a reflection and possibly an opportunity to educate. Um, So the, there is a shepherding, um, but it really matches who you're serving. Mm -hmm. I don't know what somebody needs until I'm physically in front of them and I can see it and feel it. And it, it starts coming to me. Yeah. Um, I've stopped trying to even pre- like when I first became a doula, I would like plan, like write down, like, this is what we're going to, these are the topics that I'd be like reviewing and be like, okay, I did my Here's intake with activities. this family. This, this is kind of what I'm feeling. And all that goes out the window. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just sit now and really just allow myself to be a listener to what is their real need here and what mm. are they really saying? So. Wow. So I imagine with the food that when I hear that, part of me that is, you know, I think probably on par for a lot of the culture is it feels like, oh, you're quitting, you're giving up, you're, you're, and even the other thing that I sort of occurred to me is that I've heard stories of when they have that final conversation and then they let go. And there's like a, at the end, it seems like what keeps people going is a will that not in a bad way can be let go of when that final thing has come to completion. Have, is that match your experience of being there? What do you mean? Like final thing, like, like, um, like people will hold out for cousin for, Eddie to yes, get there yes, or, or yes. conversation. I believe people decide when they're going to go really when it's that kind of scenario yes, of yes. like diagnosis and we've come this far and we're, mm-hmm. we're hanging on to like, 
little frails of life, um, as opposed to like an accidental or mm-hmm. sudden death. Um, yes, I do see the permission to let go solely sitting in that person's hands. Wow. Um, what, when you interact, um, are the, well, let's go to the person who is dying first. I'm sure that the people are, are, have a range of different experiences from fear to acceptance when you show up there. Mm -hmm. Uh, what have you learned from your interactions with them about, I don't know, regrets that they've had or ways to live one's life or things that they wish they'd done differently or. Yeah. You know, every time I sit with somebody who's dying, I actually learn about my death. Mm. I'm actually learning about myself. So it's interesting because people are like, well, what are you really learning? And it's like, I'm actually learning so much about me in the end of my life. Um, But as far as regrets and unfinished business, people tend to place a lot of emphasis on my energy shouldn't have been so tied up in resentment. My Mm. energy should have been more spent on the things that matter. You know, you never see a a U-Haul behind a hearse. You know, so the the things that really matter come to life. And I think that that's the portal of magic. Radical honesty, complete vulnerability, both of those doors, you can't shut them at the end. Mm. As much as like you can see people trying to like hold that door, you know, close. It's going to crack open. Life will crack open. Um, And so it's a lot of regret about where people decided to spend energy and where they didn't. And through witnessing that time and time again, I'm friends with death every single day. Mm. And so it changes the way that I interact with my family and my friends and my business. Um, so it changes you, you know, and I, I think it's really unfortunate that you haven't sat with somebody yeah. and you haven't been close to a dead body. Um, there's so much to, to inherit in that space. Yeah. What, what is missed? Cause I don't think I'm unique in that, in that, you know, my own personal aversion to it mm-hmm. plus a cultural aversion. Well, to it's it. all cultural. Yeah. You know, 120 years ago we had the civil war and that's where death changed in America. Okay. Tell me yeah. about this. I'm so curious can, the history. Yeah. So 120 years ago before the civil war, grandma died in the house. You watched the whole process. You helped her labor her death. They buried that grandma in the backyard and that was, Every, and then and then your sister was born. So you mm-hmm. watched, it was all happening in that one house. And so um, during the Civil War, the North and the South, there were train conductors and they were not wanting to trans, uh, tr- to put any bodies in transit anymore because of the smell. They were like, we're not. And so families were like, I want my dead husband, mm-hmm. please. And the train conductors were in refusal because it was just not very pleasant. And so Abraham Lincoln hired doctors to start embalming bodies. And that's when funeral homes, undertakers, mortuaries, now death became a business. And after the civil war, they were like, well, this is my cash grab. Like, I don't want this to end. And so they would actually embalm bodies and put them in windows. Abraham Lincoln was the first president to be embalmed and brought around the whole country and Mm -hmm. shown off. And so people, we were a country in grief and we willingly handed that over to a business. Um, and then we just forgot. Hmm. And then it became something like, you know, just very automatic. And, and now we're here 120 years later in a different cycle. And we're like, but wait, there's something missing. There's something missing in my initiation into adulthood. And that is being with death. Do you think it's the embalming process or that there's, there's a corporate 
It's the corporation. It's the corporation. So like what I see now in modern day, how the corporation has gone into, I would say not being helpful and more of a poison is, you know, when I see people who are going from treatment into hospice, all of a sudden their numbers put into some kind of database and you have hospices all over the County trying to sell them and reaching them in a very vulnerable position to like, go with our hospice, go here. You know, they're, they're now people that are being sold on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very little emphasis on, are, are you okay? How are you? Our, our mortuary offers group healing sessions every month. And, you know, when you come with our program, you know, we, we support you emotionally, you know, yeah. like there's that, there's that piece that's missing from the system. Mm. One of the things that I've heard, which I think is true is that, we, you know, we have our hospitals, which do amazing things, mm-hmm. but there's uh that there are places where life is brought into the world and places where life exits the world and they lack the temple aspect yes. where that might've happened mm-hmm. in, well, it happened everywhere in the past, but yeah. they're like that, that sort of uh sacred ritual can be clipboarded and reduced into, you know, just check here. Okay. We're going to get them in this urn, this thing. What, um, yeah, what is what would be a better way of doing that? Well, I think should the family be more involved? Yeah, in- I think wherever somebody dies, it's perfect. Whether that's in a mm-hmm. hospital or they're in the backyard in Hawaii, stargazing, like you mm-hmm. know, the best, most beautiful scenario mm-hmm. in the world. Um, wherever it's happening, it's safer because we're the temple, mm-hmm. we're the batteries, we're the extra energy in the room that can really make a difference um, by our own nervous system and regulating and helping that other person regulate through us. So. Um, I would guess my best advice for a family going through the process and wanting to bring in more sacredness would just ask that question, what could bring in more sacredness and then close your eyes and listen. Mm. And it's going to be different for each person. For cousin Eddie, it could be like, oh, go and get his pictures of his boats yeah, and bring yeah. it in the room. Play a song. For, for yeah. Auntie Rebecca, it might be, you know, let's bake her favorite pies. Even though she can't eat, let's get that smell mm-hmm. in the room. Right. Like, let's let's get that going for her so she can be in that moment. Uh, If it's for Aunt Julie, it might be, you know, let's go get boxes of sand from the beach so she can put her hands in the sand one last time. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be something different that's sacred for each person. But you just have to ask and listen and then do it. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, even just thinking of how simple the things that you mentioned are. It's moving to think of what you would want at the end yeah. sand or the smell of a pie mm-hmm. or that's, yeah, that's deeply. And that's what we do. We help people create vigils. Yeah. Uh, we help them create legacy process projects. So, um, you know, whatever that leg- legacy projects have its own voice. So you just ask what that is and it'll show up and you'll start to work with families with that. But vigil. Does that mean something that like persists after that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you yeah. tell me like what is legacy project? Mean? Oh my gosh. Legacy projects are just as across the board as the things I just mentioned <laughs> with the sand and the pie. Uh, it could be a video. It could be future okay. letters that you write uh, to your okay. grandkids. And you know, if you're dying and you know, in three years they're graduating college, writing that letter in the future or for the wedding or the future moments. Um, it could be a, a, a certain day every year where the family comes together to wear funny hats because that's what you liked. You know what I mean? It could be whatever the legacy is. It's something that continues to bring in your essence long after you're gone. Got it. It's and, tied into your dharma, really. And and 
well, even the suggestion to do that, I see as something that a death toll would bring because you're mm-hmm. going through grief. You're like probably not even eating. And the idea to necessarily write letters or create oh, a video yes. is just so far out. It's of the, so far yeah. out. And so you're going to touch on people. So I never bring it up. It's on my website of mm-hmm. things that are available for the client to see before they hire me of what my scope of practice is. Yeah. Um, but a legacy project is something, like I said, it has its own voice and it comes in when it comes in how it comes in. I've had the legacy projects bring out family drama that they were trying to wow. to squash, but it needed to come up yeah. so that they could close out this part of um, that relationship or that, that, that rough part that was more fortified than soft. And um, so the legacy project can be super triggering with my school, with my students. I teach them like not everyone's going to want to do a legacy project, but just, be listening and looking and just making notice of like who that person is. And even if nothing's made, like take in that person's legacy while you're serving them, Mm -hmm. know who you're serving. So it might just be an internal process that you see. And then years later, the family comes to you and they're like, we want to create that video, Uh, you know? So it's, it's own tied a legacy project. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. You mentioned things that you're learning about your death. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're able to put any of that into words, but if you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, you witness people um, holding on to things that you didn't know would be so... um, I'll give you an example of one person that I learned about my death. Um, I like things. I like... Uh, to play in this dimension with um, items and stuff and clothes. And, you know, like I have a, a value system here that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because the man I was serving was a very wealthy man. And he would not die because he did not want his kids to have his money. <laughs> wow. The skin was falling off of him. <sighs> he would... He did not want any of his children to inherit anything that he had created. This is the one of the most craziest thing. And after I witnessed that death, I was like, does anybody need any money? <laughs> 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 like, I, you know, I've always been very generous in giving and giving and loving with, with exchange. But like I, I opened up even more because it's just like, wow, okay, like I really don't want that to be my story at mm. the end. And I could see how a lifetime of feeding that monster could dilute that over time. So mm-hmm. you, you get to kind of see um, the resistance and then you get to see beautiful surrender and being like, I would do it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would do my death that way. And when I say that way, um, just being open to allowing the family to be in the room, being open to sharing their process. I believe that when somebody's dying, they're feeding the family and that food is their death Mm. and how they feed them and how they eat will be determined on how they grieve. And so I see now in witnessing people surrender, I'm like, I'm going to feed my family so well Mm -hmm. with the way that I leave here. And so I, I'm inheriting all those things, the do's and the don'ts, you know, um, when I'm here and and in those spaces. And yeah, it sounds like, you know, without, course there's a bit of value judgment on this but done well Mm -hmm. that the process of grief may take a different shape than if your father isn't dying because he doesn't want to give you the money like the the things that you'll have to unpack right like 
now dad's dead and now like there's this weird thing with the money and I don't even yeah. know how, like, what do I do? What do there's I do too with many the, yeah. things. There's too many things that you're putting up. So yeah, I'm, I donate my body to my family's grief. And, and what that looks like is um, including them in, in all of it and telling them and sharing about like what the process feels like. Hmm. Um, I'm going somewhere eventually before some people in my family. And if I can give them a little bit of something of their death through mine, then I'm going to. And I, I, I truly believe that's how we reinvest in the future we can't see is yeah. by sharing our death. You mentioned somewhere, you know, up the river, down the river. Mm -hmm. uh, what, how did your beliefs about this evolve over the course of your life? I, I don't know if you it started just with got a belief. stronger. So, I mean, I was raised in the context of a very strong, strict Christian home. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a belief in life after death, but there's also like this karmic system that I didn't buy into. Like at the age of nine, I was like, I was born a sinner. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, no, no. Um, so I, so you I didn't go for original I didn't, sin right I didn't, didn't jump. I didn't okay. jump on that bandwagon. I actually remember waking up from that Maya, that illusion at nine and being like, uh, no, mm -hmm. mm, this doesn't feel right. So, but I, but I had already at that age experienced so much of, the invisible world that you can feel, but you can't see. Um, and just so much in my life had happened up until that point where I, I knew at a very young age that some, there's a place somewhere outside of this that is where I'm going to go to. And it's, it's not bad. It doesn't feel scary. It doesn't feel condemning. Um, and so throughout my life that's solidified and I've got more validation, um, more synchronistic things that come through that really speak to like when you're self questioning, like, is this really real? And something pops up and you're like, okay, yeah, like, mm -hmm. this is really, <laughs> there is really something that happens on the other side. Um, I think my relationship with my understanding of it, if you were to reduce it down now is that side needs us as much as we need them. Mm. There's a collaboration that's always available to us. If we can kind of, get ourselves into that space to be able to receive it. Do you have an idea of what that side needs from us and what we need from them Faith. at all? Okay. Belief. Um, that just makes it more tangible for us to be here on earth is when we, so we have to have a myth, right? Like, so there's like, we, we can have the myth of Christianity. We can have the, the myth of Buddhism. We can have the myth of Krishna, doesn't matter which one's right at the end. It's just what those myths are giving us is a, a value system of how to live our best and most ascended life here. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I quit trying to name what happens at the end, but I, I, I definitely feel there's an evolution of the soul. Um, and, it, and it feels like a celebration. Um, and that side really wants us to celebrate why we're here still. Hmm. I think that side um, tries to make itself more visible to us as time goes on so that like we don't get stuck in like the, the guilt or the shame or the same mistakes that maybe they, how they live their lives before they left. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there's, there's a lot of cheerleaders on that side. Interesting. Mm -hmm. okay. I call it the great garden. And, and why is it the great garden? <laughs> I don't know. One of my clients came to me after she passed mm. and she was calling it the great garden. Mm. Actually, this is her. This. This is part of her body. This is her cremation. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. 
do you have keepsakes from, uh, <laughs> I do, I get a lot, I mean, I get a lot of gifts from people on the other side after they go in the family. Sometimes, you know, be like, Oh, I know you, you guys really, there's a strong bond that's connected, mm -hmm. you know? So sometimes I inherit really lovely heirlooms. Um, and in this case, yeah, it was, it was this woman that came to me and she was showing me this garden where it was, um, the water, you, you couldn't see, you could see forever in it. It was like this beautiful pond where it was just crystal. You say clear. she was showing you. What, what do you mean mm -hmm. by that? Um, it's usually typically, I, I mean, I can get images all day. I so mean, you were, you're we're sitting all, with her and you're starting to get these images? Or she had already passed. Okay. Mm -hmm. She already passed. And um, I was, gosh, probably, I, I don't even know exactly where, but typically I get like most of my profound messages right before sleep or when I'm in the shower. When I'm just kind of in like, not even trying to think of it, you know, just like passing into like one phase of awareness into the next. And um, she came through and she was just showing me this beautiful garden. I was mm. like, this is amazing. It's like just images. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I, I ask my audience is uh, probably mirrors me in that I was very up until I'm 35 now, probably up until 30 ish years old. I was hardcore materialist, I mm -hmm. would say. Mm -hmm. Um got my family successfully to stop going to church through enough arguing and <laughs> complaining and <You> did it. <laughs> yeah, made my aunt cry. And I was just like, oh, you know, man. little, little like ruiner of all things religious. Little Satan. <laughs> exactly. Little my numbers, you know, six, six, six are the first three numbers of my number. So I was, I was, a, I was a, not a terror, but I was a, um, I did not go for it. I felt a, a strong disconnection from, mm -hmm. from religion. Mm -hmm. And it's only recently that, um, I have uh, experienced an openness to, what do I say? My dog dying was the first time that I was like, I feel a presence that is her, that is, I, that uh, there's a knowing which I cannot justify, prove, explain, or point to. And uh, so I'm just, I say that because I'm, I'm curious how you talk to people like, sort of me in this in-between not certain stage and people who maybe were like more how I was like what is there any way to speak to someone like that and open them up or it, for me it was like you know I did a bunch of plant medicine yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> I mean I think that's an important process and it's a very vulnerable one yeah um and it's one that doesn't come with a guidebook it, it's an embodiment piece Mm -hmm. There, you know, so what you were saying is like this knowing, but there are no words for it, but there's this understanding that there's something more. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the gift that pets give us, you mm -hmm. know, when they cross over is they're also helpers for us to realize that life isn't over at death. But, um, I would just nourish the embodiment practice. It's like, whatever's coming up for you, it's it might be an image. It might be a smell of your dog. It might be um, a, a dog that's very similar that walks by you and mm -hmm. does kind of the same mannerisms as your dog. And you go, hmm, that, you know, what's that? You know, all of those things um, are playing a role. But yeah, you know, there's nothing to really say or to stretch there. I just tell people be, be with that magic. Keep your heart open. Actually, I think that would be the only thing I would say. So no matter what you're experiencing in grief or that in-between purgatory state, keep your heart open. Don't mm -hmm. close that part down. A lot of people will do that, will close off, and, and um, it just restricts the flow of all the magic that yeah. can be shown to you.
Yeah. I think that was part of it for me was, I mean, the emotions that came up were just so intense, you know, obviously grief, but rage. I was livid, not for a long period of time, yeah. but, I, but I had to feel the spike of that rage at the universe and God and, and everything, you yeah. know? And I was like, oh, this is, this has been here the whole time. Well, I was going <laughs> to say that piece would yeah. be something, if you were a client, I would go, okay, well, where was the first time that you experienced that yeah. kind of rage? Because it sounds like your dog gave you an extra uh, invitation to really go there and yeah. discover what's hidden. What is in that rage box? Yes. That there was, the, she, there she was, I was like a trigger business. for right, that. Exactly. Yes. Animals do that. Yes. Uh, humans do it too, but I find that animals are like, they're holding all the keys to like our unprocessed trauma. When they die, we're like, fuck you. Oh, sorry. I'm going to guess. You're fine. <laughs> You're allowed screw, to swear. Screw you, Aunt Betty. They're like, why am I mad at my aunt right now? And it's mm -hmm. like, you abandoned me. But it's, it's all tied in. And um, yeah, so that's where I would say I would encourage my client to start exploring because your, your dog passing wasn't for no reason. And those feelings coming up are not by accident. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I, for me, it was, I didn't know this and I, I, it's, it's funny in retrospect, but you know, still has some rawness to it. It was, I felt unloved by God. I was like, why would you do this to me? Why would you mm. give me this and then take this from me? And that question and that realization and sort of the while, while there are good reasons to, that I think I push back on the organized religion and all of that stuff, that there was an emotional bedrock that sort of informed why I did that, which was this anger or frustration or rage for feeling unloved by creation or whatever. Feeling into that and feeling the misunderstanding of that point of view uh, was you know, open something up, I think in me. And I don't claim to be uh deeply intuitive, spiritually connected at this point, but I feel, I feel an opening. That is what can't I would be say. true. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in comparison with some of the people that I know that feel the ease that I see you engage with this and the um, utter assuredness that you have in the experiences that you have had, I don't, there's, I, f I find myself on both sides going, this is just, you're just making this up. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. these are just thoughts and feelings to coping mechanisms to deal with grief and pain. And, yeah. and then the other part of me goes, you are shutting down the most, the gift of, of this. And if you can stop the fear that, that makes those doubts come up, mm -hmm. there's just so much more. So I find myself tug of warring at this particular point in my life Just make them be friends yeah, yeah the 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 need to have the logic and the need to feel into the magic both need to have a conversation mm -hmm. that's it be mm -hmm. like just talk to the fear be like why are you so scared that this might be a possibility mm. and the logic be like thank you for keeping me grounded yeah well, I think you said it is I've seen some what to me feel like people who are in and around this beliefs, not exactly your belief system, but space <laughs> that I go, they're, 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 they're out of their space cadets. <laughs> they're totally, they're totally in the ether and maybe yeah. they have a deeper knowing than even I am capable of, but I, I want to, so want to operate here no, yes. <laughs> on planet Yeah, Earth. Before enlightenment, <laughs> chop wood, carry water after yes. enlightenment. Chop wood, carry water. water. Yeah, you got to still do the human thing. You know, I 
go and I, I serve plant medicine and I go and I serve a family who needs support for the dying. And then I'll have a couple calls with my students and do coaching stuff. And then, and then I go home and I eat ice cream and watch mm-hmm. 90 day fiance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like yeah. I, I, I don't ever want to pretend or, you know, that, that aloofness sometimes I feel like is, uh, I can see it. I was just like, stop being so dramatic. Mm-hmm. Just come, just come back to us. Like it's okay to be human. That's what we're here to do. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I know what the ungroundedness you're talking about. So the logic keeps me grounded. Yeah. The logic keeps me in check. I don't want to make the logic go out the window, but my logic and my magic are, are now like in cahoots with like, how do we make every day a miracle for Mary? Mm. How do we keep her invested and committed and grounded and uniformed? And how do we also show her all the miraculous things that are around her at all times? Mm-hmm. Like, and so that's where I operate with both of them. And does that, I mean, this is, what is your daily experience? Do you feel like you experience yeah. that level of connectedness most <laughs> yeah. every day? Yeah, because it's nothing to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't have to like invoke a meditation. I don't have to go do plant medicine. I, I really have enough evidence in myself that like I, I am the medicine. It's mm. happening right now. And this moment is a miracle. The fact that I woke up today is a miracle. Um, and it's, it's, it's this feeling of just being satisfied. Wow. Satisfied. Interesting. I feel, um, that some of the end points that everybody knows you want to get to, it's like, it's a miracle. And, you know, waking up was great mm-hmm. can become, um, and I've, I've done this. They can become mantras that you like just repeat to try to make it true in the yeah. face of not sincerely feeling it embodied inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a difference when it's like yeah, effortless yeah. knowing versus I'm going to write it down 800 times in my gratitude journal and affirm it until it becomes real, which has a certain degree of yeah. value at some point yeah. in the journey. But, I want it all. Yeah. I, I want the I want the feeling of being scared. I want the feeling of being really stoked. Me having a moment where I almost crashed my car on the 405 and I, ooh, I, <laughs> I barely, I barely don't like, you know, I could be, see that as like a, ugh, what, get what are you doing, Mary? Or I could be like, that was exhilarating. Yeah. I am so protected, you know? So it's just really how I'm relating to each moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, you know, sacred rage is important. Feeling disconnected from myself is, is a part of a shedding away process that we all feel. People get really connected to wanting to be connected. And that's not the whole point. Mm. Um, we are constantly contracting and expanding and, um, yeah, that that don't force the mantra. You know, people say fake it till you make it. I think that can become poison too. Yeah. Um, be with what is arriving arriving at any moment. I keep my faucet on. I can be really pissed off in a moment and express it in the most somatic way, and I feel great about the next moment, wherever that takes me. So, um, yeah, the mantra work. I, I've get into that. It's got a, it's got a certain, it's place. got a place. Yeah. yeah it's got a and, place. and everything, every, and this is what I've seen, which is of course, thank you life for making everything so paradoxical and tricky, but, uh, <laughs> every strength that I've had in my life contains the seeds of a weakness and a limitation for the next thing that you right? So I'm pretty analytical and pretty like that has been the barrier to the next thing. It was the, the key to success in one stage. And now it is the limit, the ceiling on, right. on right. the next thing. So it's not that mantras are bad. They're wonderful until they're, they're no longer they're the useful. ceiling on the next thing. Right. And I also feel like what mantra is pointing us to is just linguistics. Mm-hmm. 
like everything I say is a, is a mantra because it's reaffirming my external experience, which is reaffirming my internal experience. So I'm really careful, mindful might be the right word, of um, what I say and how I say it and what I mean behind what I say. Um, so that's what mantras has pointed me to is like the next part is just like the linguistic part. Mm. So I want to talk about plant medicine too. Yes. <laughs> uh, what is your background, uh, I guess, doing slash facilitating? Um, yeah, I, I facilitate 5-MeO-DMT. Um, I also facilitate MDMA and psilocybin. Mm-hmm. So um, those are the three medicines that I work with. Uh, some of my clients come for just one of those medicines in a sitting. Sometimes they... It's a multiple, you know, it's a couple of those mixed in for a journey. So it really just depends. But those are the ones that I work with. Um, and I work with people who uh, are at the end of life with this medicine. Um, and we gauge which medicine. Ob- there's a lot that goes into serving somebody who's mm. at the end of life. But um, and then people who are dealing with energetic death mm. and physically healthy, you know, so I have a wide range of people I serve. Yeah. I should, I should say I've not sat with you before, mm-hmm. but a lot of people, like I've talked about having sat and they always ask, I don't know, is it, is it okay if people search you and find you on the internet and reach out to you regarding this sort of a thing? Yeah. You know, um, through like this kind of podcast format, um, yeah, I probably won't respond Okay, you know, yeah. <laughs> for, for plant medicine work. You know, there's a very, uh, a specific way that I intake clients. Um, and you know, so most likely if you hear me on here, <laughs> you're probably not going to see me in real life. <laughs> I'm not going to answer your text or an email and everything I do is, um, within regards to safety and the law. So yeah. Yeah. Got it. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I just get a lot of questions and, you know, we're at a stage with the legality in the United States of America where unfortunately I can't be like, here's a trusted person that I can refer you to and they can see if you're a good fit. And it's, you know, it just is a bummer. And I, not not yeah. to put any of that that you need to no, solve this yeah, problem. It's a fine line that we have to walk as facilitators, yeah. as, as um, holders of these sacred medicines. And um, we're, we're in a very exciting time now where, you know, back in the 70s and the, the 60s and the revolution of the, the re- renaissance of psychedelics back then versus now is we have integration. Mm. We have a lot more science. And so uh, it's beautiful because, you know, this the ball is already rolling towards legalization, which is exciting. I'm very interested to see how all the legalities eventually iron out. But the, my... My projection, if I pull myself out of my body and I look at psychedelics as like a timeline, I I truly believe that the medicine will work its way through our collective consciousness in such a big way that we will eventually remember that we are the medicine. Mm. And that's already happening in us. When I facilitate any medicine, it's not like I stand outside of people with mandalas and Mm. fractals and I, I make them feel something. That's all happening already inside of them. That's their an internal process. So mm-hmm. there's hopefully going to be a point where, you know, we'll just remember that and we'll get to a state of um, more clarity with that. But the medicine's already showing us what we are. Mm. So, And yeah, I've, I've, it's seen people and there's an easy tendency to go, oh, this thing helped me. This, this, mm. And of course, these experiences are intense. And it seems yes. like a, a good practitioner or facilitator is always trying to remind you of like, this occurred inside of you. Yes, yes, it was occasioned. Yes, there might have been some assistance and some opening and some support, but this right. was this was an, this this was 
not happening for everyone else in the world, in the room, in the way that it was happening for you. It's your fingerprint. Yeah. It's your inner fingerprint. It's your inner concert. It's only the things that you could understand. And, and, and it's different. You know, you can give somebody the same dose next to the same person mm-hmm. and they'll have two very completely different experiences with the medicine. Um, yeah, and it's, it's important. You know, there's a lot of facilitators that are holding these medicines with integrity and reminding people, empowering them back to themselves. And then there's also the facilitators that stand over people with rattles. They're like, it's me, I'm yeah. doing it. And, yeah. and I find that to be funny. Mm. <laughs> I yeah. find that to be just a comical, um, you know, we're all getting medicine from the right people that we're supposed to at, at different times. But, um, you know, to find a facilitator, um, I would say, you know, ask a lot of questions, um, make sure that people, you know, have personally sat with this person, um, and make sure that there's an intake process, a medical intake process, yeah. as well as an energetic and spiritual mental intake. Um, and make sure that that facilitator is all about integration. Mm. If you can find one that is heavy on those aspects, then I think you're you're aiming in the right direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of the medicines that you work with, I, I know that a lot of it is certainly intuitive. But do you see different roles that each of them might play that are subtly different. Yeah. So can you, can you break down sort of how you think about that? Um, I find that psilocybin is like a teacher Mm -hmm. and the teacher that it can be, can be like ayahuasca, very grandmother, like stern, or it can kind of sometimes, you know, go into like more of a masculine role. But I find that the psilocybin is teaching us something about, um, the network of our energy. Mm-hmm. And then the MDMA I find is all about opening up that heart space. And I've seen a lot of different psychic activations happen when people are fully open in the heart space. So tell me about that because this is a, a you know, one of the words that was super triggering to me, you know, I, uh, the Sylvia Brown on more or on a, that oh, she, you know, like all these feet, like <laughs> I, I am livid and uh, my girlfriend's mom goes to a psychic and I'm just like, Oh my God. You know, it, it, yeah. so tell me, tell me what that means and yeah, how you understand that. So when that. I say psychic activations, yeah, that should be clarified. Thank you. Um, just more of a trust in the energy that's constantly speaking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're so open, they're able to tap into kind of their auric field, um, kind of do a little bit of inventory of what it is in my emotional body, which is governed by everything that's surrounding you that you sometimes can't even see blind spots. Um, but kind of doing this like emotional inventory, having the heart open, there seems to be a, a conversation that they can have with their higher selves in that space and therefore gains more trust of whatever that is. I don't know that guiding force, um, call it God, source energy, light. Uh, anytime I try to name it, I immediately get the message like, don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> It's not the point. So whatever that is, they gain more trust with that. Mm. And I think that's because the heart is open. Um, and the heart is, is a beautiful, um, it's a brain it has more neurons and electrons than our actual physical brain. Um, so there's a lot happening here when you, when we fully open this space and then five MEO DMT is a great practice of death. Hmm. That's what I felt. I freaked mm-hmm. out. Yeah. I did not handle it well. Um, some people just, you know, I've seen Hamilton pharmacopoeia. He's just love, love. I He's was great. I was not that. <laughs> I, He's like, it. how do I quantify love? Yeah, I'm like, quantify love. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was a mess. I've done it a handful of times now. And uh, that's what it was. It was everything that I have 
been and associated myself with being ripped away and my feeble attempt to remember that I had a dad, that I drove here in a car, that I, and yeah, the first one was so, so challenging. I'm very interested to know, was it with the secretion or with the alkaloid? I believe it was with secretion. Okay. Yeah. I believe it was with um, toad. And so let's pause here because yeah. you were you were breaking down the differences here and then we go back into that. So yeah, yeah with the two different types of 5-MEO. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and share oh, a little bit okay. about that. Oh, well, I definitely want to go back to your yes, experience. Yes. Okay, but putting a pin in it. Yeah, there's this secretion from the Sonoran Desert toad, mm-hmm. which is just milking the, the glands on the side of the toad right onto a, a glass surface. They scrape it off. That's the medicine. Mm-hmm. The isolated alkaloid. Um, some would refer to it as synthetic. I stay away from calling it that because it's not fake. It's just derived mm. in a laboratory at just making that alkaloid. Okay. Without anything else. Great. Yeah. And we can come back to that. So we'll put a pin in that. Yeah. But <laughs> what was, so yeah. So I took the, uh, I believe, toad mm-hmm. of, okay. of that. And do you remember your dosage? Yeah. Gosh. Uh, let me do this. Um, the first one was like 17 of milligrams or whatever. Okay, seven, like, 17. That's 17, pretty, 17, yeah. 17. That's pretty low. Yes. It was low. Okay. Yeah. And then okay. we actually went lower and I think I went down to like 13 mm-hmm. and, um, but that's, that's 13 plus 17. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah. that was, that was after a break. Okay. Um, okay. or a second time that I came back again. And then the suggestion was when I came back a month or two later, um, cause stuff was coming up in my life right. that was historical challenging stuff. And um, it was, you know, we might actually go a bit higher than that because it seems like at this, you're you're fighting. Like, you're really, really fighting. So we went a bit higher, and I was able to, with that, I just, I remember I was just, breathe and allow. I was, like, making noise. Like, they were just coming. <laughs> I totally get that. I, I can see exactly. Yeah. yeah I, I, can, you know, I know exactly where you were at. Yeah, An yeah. inner... <gasps> Like yeah. bigness. And then I sang for 45 minutes. Oh. I, yeah, it was, oh. and it was, uh, I, I would love to get back there. That was a special place. That's never, yeah. Uh, that's never not with you. Yeah. You can do that anytime. It was a freedom that I have been working on, yeah. you know, and, and not like I'm, I'm definitely making strides and I'm feeling even, um, as I've not just done more medicine, but more integration, like the, this tightness in my ribs and my intercostal muscles, like mm. is starting to give way a little bit. Wow. Um, but I sang and I think, I think I actually sang well, which is crazy, you know, but it was, there was a absolute freedom mm. of lows lower than I've ever been mm-hmm. higher than I've ever been effortlessly in between in my register. And I had wanted, i have always wanted to be a good singer and I've taken lessons and I focus on the technicalities, but that, I've never been able to get that smoothness. And when I listen back, it's, you know, it's not a huge argument. It's not, it's not great, (laughs) but, um, I suspect, and I wish I had it recorded. I bet you it was better than I'd ever sang in my life in terms of the timbre and quality and tone. That was your sacred song. Everybody has a song inside of them. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. I remember I was like, this is, this is just your song. This is, and, and I didn't know where it was going. Yeah. I love this for you. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds like your facilitator was pretty <laughs> straight on with understanding where you're at, where mm-hmm. your next dosage would be. Um, what was the difficult time? It was a number of things. One of them was acknowledging 
that I'd been molested was coming up around the same time. And that came up in a prior ayahuasca ceremony. And that was around a time where I was, I think this happened right before that ayahuasca. I was like, what is in me? I, I was like, there was this terror, this fear. And if I, you know, years out had to describe why the terror, I finally had a journey where I went to the same place where I felt lost in the unknown and finally wasn't afraid. But the unknown, the dark, the lostness yeah. was one-to-one connected with terror for yeah. me. And uh, yeah, so I'd had a couple of Aya journeys and, and those journeys where I was just like, this is a level of being taken out alone into the woods mm-hmm. that is just inescapable and horrifying and you know the definitely the two most challenging experiences of my life are five meo dmt that particular day and ayahuasca one particular night yeah and i had a similar experience after my dog died and i felt guided out in the dark which Mm. was thank god because i don't i don't i don't want to do that (laughs) without that level of guidance well i mean i think what having that experience and then looking, and just that one experience, we'll just use the 5-MEO, not mm. ayahuasca, just the 5-MEO experience. And then looking down later on your timeline, you're an old man, you're transitioning, you have all the family and the friends and the things around you. Would you take something from that experience and bring it over to your death? Hmm. You know, it was what would the thing that I grabbed onto and it wasn't connected, but gets me is that I, uh, I reached out for my dad. I was so trying to get him and I was trying to anchor myself with him and just the love and the importance of that was, you know, having not spoken to him in a couple of weeks or whatever, and just living my life that in that moment of panic, that that was what I went to was, um, you know, it shows you who you are in, in those, those moments of no pretense, no bigging yourself up, no trying to act cool. Like where do you reach? Wow. Yeah. What a good gauge. Yeah. It, it was a death, a practice death. It was definitely a V1. <laughs> <laughs> we went through it. It was a practice. That's why I love five. Yeah. And it is a practice of death and it really shows you, like you said, where you're hanging on, what is your, what is your reactivity? What is the truth behind all the things that you put up? Like you can't hide from that medicine. Yeah. That's the scariest part. <laughs> what, yes. And that's the thing. Some of the other ones that I've worked with feel more interactive. Like you can play games and like, it'll yeah. give you a lesson because, okay, here's the lesson of what yeah. it is to play that game. Yeah. And, and five and meow is like no games. There's no game. No bullshit. Nope. Confrontation with mm-hmm. whatever, and yeah. So You're it's intense. Yourself in that space. Yeah. Do you have a sense? Because I, I was like, man, why am I? You know, there's people that are similar to me in other ways, and you know, they're blissing out and having a great time on these particular things. <laughs> Do you have a sense when people come into it of how no. it might? No. No. Sometimes, sometimes, but I will say, ninety percent of the time, yeah, no. Ten percent of the time, I can be pretty predictable mm. with what, what what I'm seeing, and I'm like, oh, okay. But yeah, I I have been shockingly surprised at how people interact with this medicine. Um, 
and been like, oh, okay, we're going there. Yeah. Okay. All right. You know, so um, this medicine, it, it's, it's, it's a loose cannon in that sense where, you know, you really, if you're facilitating this me- medicine, have to have a long, strong connection with it and have been in enough ceremonies and circles to where you've kind of seen it all. You, you're mm-hmm. never going to see it all, but you've seen enough to know how to support the different energies that are coming up. People are, are now coming to medicine for therapeutic reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, you do have the explorers and the people are like, I just want to see what's in the, yeah. I don't even know what my intention is. Let's just go. And that's yeah. wonderful. And then you have people who are coming with uh, a lot of trauma and a lot of wounding. Um, and so you never know what's going to come out of mm-hmm. that space. How should these, in your understanding, what sort of supports ought to be there for integration? Because I know that as this stuff gets legalized, well, one we could talk about is that MDMAs and whatever, like phase three trials, yeah. one of the things that I've heard practitioners that have done it for a while discuss but that is exciting but disappointing is that it's very clinical in the yeah. way that it's done. So in order to pass through FDA trials, you need to be able to run studies on it that are performed by exactly the same thing and where the facilitator is not an important piece of it in the sense that they just sit there and, you know, maybe ask questions, but are quiet and sit there. Mm -hmm. Um, first, yeah. Thoughts on what might be lost in, in that application of it? Well, the rigidity is where things can get lost. Um, the unflexibility to, when you're working with somebody and they're in this open space to be able to take them outside yeah. if they want to go outside, do you want to color? Do you, what, what, what do you, do you want to hang, bang on the drum? Do you want to play the crystal bowls? Yeah. Like, you know, giving them full range of, uh, expression. I see that as not being very clinical, mm-hmm. uh, you know, see it fully, so we'll be missing out on that. Um, and there's, there's a beautiful intuitive relationship that happens with the facilitator yeah. Um, who is open to their client. Cause you, as a facilitator, you have to be a full yes with them. Right. So like I, as a doctor, you're like, okay, who's, who, who do we have today? We've got this person, this person, this person, let's just go down and get this done. Uh, as opposed to a facilitator, if you've come into my, my circle, I, I'm just as excited. Like I'm doing my work to prepare mm. for your work. You know, this is a, this is a thing that's being born between us. And so Having that facilitator be in that space, I think, is is it, it makes a difference. Um, and then the integration piece really can't happen until you really see. So, like going back to the rigidity, there isn't a f- there isn't a format of integration. You don't know what the integration is until you sit with the medicine. Yeah. So, as a facilitator, you're kind of like party planning a little bit, like and putting <laughs> notes in your head of like, okay, this is going to be a great thing for them after integration, this thing, this thing. So you're getting all these like tools and techniques and they're not necessarily um, going to be in any textbooks, these t- techniques that come yeah. up. So having that kind of uh, willingness to work with the spirit of the medicine, mm-hmm. I think can get lost in the medical system. I, I, the medical system has a place for this. It's getting us through a really small door um, of opportunity to open mm-hmm. this medicine up to, you know, other people. And some people really, there are a, a certain class of people that could never imagine sitting with medicine with someone like me. I want to be in a setting. I want to yeah. be in the hospital. I want to be close to machines. Yeah. Like, and that's what it's going to take for yeah. them to feel comfortable. And, and so I recognize the importance of that too. So, you know, it's just going to be a navigating process mm-hmm. w- through legalization. I don't foresee 
I guess I guess I'll I'll always probably be rogue with my qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and you know, that's that's where the volatility of the the medical system comes in and says we want to cap downside, but in order to do that, we have to standardize, which sort of caps our upside as well. Right, and what I I mean. Me being who I am, I'm connected to a lot of practitioners who've gone through the education, who've gone through the system, who've invested a lot of their energy into making this possible for this medicine to go through them. And then I work with them and their clients. Mm-hmm. There's my door in, yeah. you know, to, to now have the full medical setting, the full, you know, thing that they're looking for. And then, and then the esoteric, energetic, intuitive door open mm-hmm. too. Um, so there, there can be a world where both, systems can collaborate yeah i'm excited i hope mm-hmm. that uh yeah I, I i think that in my future if it is legalized to an extent where i would feel comfortable like i would love to have a, a facility of some kind yes that you know i don't know that i see myself necessarily though possibly as a facilitator but mm-hmm. um right now right now i'm learning you're learning <laughs> yeah be with the medicine and the medicine will show up like you'll know what okay i want to serve this I want to, I, I, I want to create, I have such a deep relationship with this medicine that I want to learn more. I want to get in community. I want to find a mentor. I want to be in circles and I want to, I want to create, like it's a deep feeling of creation that comes through you. Um, and, and wanting to be of service. Uh, And so when that feels like that's turned up all the way, then you'll know. Yeah. Yeah. I know the answer to this question, but I want to hear you talk about it. Uh, (laughs) How does you, well, I guess I don't know exactly. How does your work make you feel? Like both mm. the dueling and the, and the serving. Yeah, I, I feel uh, like I'm living my Dharma. Mm. I feel very fortunate to have figured out and landed in, in a space of receptivity to, to hold this. Um, it makes me feel like I, going back to that word, I feel satisfied every day uh, in this work, whether it's a full packed crazy day, or maybe I'm just kind of serving a couple people or taking a couple calls. Like all of it is impactful. So I feel my work makes me and reflects back to me, my satisfaction. Um, yeah, I guess that's the word. Yeah. I feel satisfied. That's, I want to find that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've, I've enjoyed my work. I've been, um, inspired, engaged, uh, titillated, you know, like heady things with, with work in the past, Mm -hmm. but that deep satisfaction of like, Oh, right place. You know, this is it. I I sense is beyond things that I've, I've I've yet to find that. So I think you found it. I think when you close your eyes, you do have a vision of what that person looks like, talks like where he lives, where he spends his time. Like, I think you have a pretty clear idea of where that is, but you're just Doing the work to get there. Yes. It's, uh, it's revealing itself. Mm-hmm. And, and also I'm getting comfortable with the ways in which, you know, that inner knowing I have a resistance to. I don't really like it. I like things that are stacked and deductible. You know, you go this plus this plus this plus this equals this. Yeah. When things come in complete packages unbidden, I almost go, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, that's too easy. That's, I don't, not even too easy. That's, um, yeah, I got to work through some stuff that, that just, I feel yeah. resistance to. Yeah. You'll get there. And it, it is this, it's the, this is the whole point is to be in the process of it. Once mm-hmm. you get there, then you're going to be like thinking about the next thing. Mm-hmm. 
So <laughs> we'll do that. There was this one. This is the unfolding. One final piece, which we mentioned earlier, but I just wanted to say because I hadn't known this, and I think it might be useful if people are doing this. Is that you, there's a you work with um, not synthetic, but you work with what is the the term they I use? I call it an isolated alkaloid or five meo DMT. So bufo is referring to the toad. Yeah, the bufo alvarius toad. Um, and then 5-MeO, you can call it 5 or the isolated alkaloid or yeah. the synthetic, but yeah. So what are some of the reasons that you've decided to go that route? Um, you know, one of the main reasons was the energy. There's a lot of different technical things with the Bufo alvarius that just didn't feel in alignment once I... It's like once you like discover spots on something, you can't unsee them. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot in the... the um, collection of the medicine. Um, there are some really ethical places on this planet that ethically source it. But um, for me, it just made more sense as well to to move over to the isolated alkaloid because I also serve people who are dying. Mm. And in the secretion, there's only 15, I believe 15. The secretion comes from the toad. The secretion yeah. that comes from the toad, there's about 15 to 29 percent of the 5-MeO and the rest are all toxins mm. that you don't even know what you're smoking. Okay. You know, because those toxins are um, generated specifically to that toad's environment and its specific predators. So, so is th is this secretion like keep predators off? Is that yeah, is that what it yeah, does in the wild? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and then people will come toad them and then over milk them, and now they have nothing to protect themselves. Okay. So there's a lot of reasons, but that was like. The main, like, you know, there's a lot of different, like I said, reasons, but the main one was so like, I have to make well. sure what yeah. I'm serving people who are transitioning, I have to make sure I know exactly what I'm giving them and the exact amount. So for dosage reasons, this is as uh, target and specific as I could get. Wow. So they will, you'll do, I didn't realize you're doing five MEO during transition at times, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. smaller doses, large. Yeah. Small doses. Okay. I work. So with, um, people who are in transitioning, there's, there's a lot of things that are different mm -hmm. than serving somebody who's course. physically healthy. Of course, yeah. A lot of considerations. Um, but one of the considerations is I take it very low and slow. We're doing very small dosages of so five milligrams, waiting, 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 mm. another five milligrams, waiting, 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 another five milligrams. So it's a slow drawn out process, low and slow. Um, and my process with that is I'm not trying to blow somebody's mind away. Mm. Um, there's a fine line between um, uh, surrender and uh, submit. <laughs> 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 and I'm not trying to show somebody how to submit to the medicine. I want to yeah. show them how to surrender. And that yeah. goes with some kind of awareness with them in that medicine. Mm. And I knew there was this one client that I worked with and he had never done a psychedelic in his life. He was dying of stage four liver cancer. So he had done every treatment, every morphine, every painkiller, anything that could help him at the end of life. He's tried it, trials, everything. And I gave him the first inhalation of the five and he lays back in his seat and he just goes, oh, this is better than morphine. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, you know, even in that like funniness, I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like for a, somebody who's dying of that kind of cancer to say mm. it's better than morphine, that, that spoke to me. I was mm. like, I, this is important work. This is important work, you know? Mm. And, um, this other woman was beautiful. Her intention of trying this medicine was, um, she was afraid that dying would hurt. 
separating from her body would be painful. And um, in the medicine, so like I said, I give the five, we wait, five, we wait. In between those little waves, um, she was saying, oh, man, I'm separated. There's a separateness, separateness, oh, separate it. And she would do like little yeah. somatic shakes, and she was she just kept repeating this. And in between the next round, I said, hey, can you tell me a little bit about what you were talking about, where you were when you said separate? And she's like, yeah, I was separate, completely separate from my body. And I said, well, did it hurt? And her eyes lit up, and she goes, no. Yeah. And right there, the deal was made that it didn't have to hurt. Something about her death changed in that moment because now she had enough proof that separating didn't have to be associated with pain mm. and suffering. Wow. So like these things are happening and revealing themselves um, at the end of life that I can't, I can't ignore it. Yeah, they're just like rehearsals right at the end, right before the, the final gift. Yeah, <laughs> that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the questions that I had. Is there anything that we touched on that you wanted to go back to? Oh, gosh. No, I feel really complete. Perfect. I mean, satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> I was just really grateful to be here and to have been invited on in, you know, into this space. And um, you and your team have just been really welcoming and loving. And it's, this has just felt really natural. So thank oh, you. Thank you for coming. Uh, where can people find you? You said you have a podcast yeah, if they want to learn um, more. And I know you also have a death doula, I think, like, I course yeah. that teaches people to do that i have i have a lot of things happening so i've uh, the anamkara academy which is a three-month certification process where i teach people to hold this space and um it, it's a mystery school it, it's a really powerful initiation into this work um and then i have my podcast called the anamkara podcast a-n-a-m-kara c-a-r-a -A podcast um but yeah, if you want to find me, it's Mary Telliano on Instagram or connectanamkara.com. Cool. We'll throw in links. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mary. Yeah. It's Wonderful good. chatting. Yeah. Yay. Ta -ta.